Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy Collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Dearest listener, allow me to unveil a delightful secret. Snag Tights Craft Clothing that embraces every body shape. In a bold endeavor to revolutionize the fashion realm, Snag has triumphed. Permit me to draw your attention to the ingenious Chub Rub Shorts, crafted with moisture-wicking yarn, promising to keep you at least one degree cooler and utterly free from the discomfort of chafing. Free shipping on select orders. Thus, the more you snag, the more you save. Do not delay. Dear listener, experience the fashion revolution that is snag and visit snagtights.us today. Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of iHeartRadio and Shondaland Audio. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Katie's Crib. Today, we are talking about race. I sincerely want to learn how to be an anti-racist parent. And I sincerely want to learn how to raise an anti-racist kid. And I'm going to be brutally honest with you guys. I don't know how to do that. And in all the ways that we have seen in the past with Katie's Crib, you guys know I really like to use this podcast and this platform to learn how to be a better parent. And so I figured we're going to do the same thing on the subject of race. We have collected an incredible group of experts on the subject, and we get down and honest and real about what we should be doing as parents, what we can be doing better, and the action items we need to take to make this world a better place. Today, we're featuring the brilliant Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Dr. Tatum and I cover so much ground, and something I found especially helpful is the specific examples she shares for how to have these necessary and often uncomfortable conversations around race with our kids. Thanks so much for listening, and here we go. So without further ado, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum is an award-winning educational leader, noted expert on the psychology of racism, a best-selling author of the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?, and other conversations about race. And she's a mother of two, 
As a leading voice on race and racism, Dr. Tatum has devoted the past 40 years to teaching people how to break the silence and embrace cross-racial dialogue to lead to effective action for social change. We're incredibly lucky to have her on Katie's crib. Dr. Tatum, I cannot thank you so much for your work and for making time for us mamas today. I'm happy to be here. I'm so, I know you're very busy. If you guys go to her website, you can see the podcasts and the articles that you have been writing in the past few weeks, let alone the books you've been writing for a billion years, but also the incredible, you might know her from the Sesame Street special um, town hall that was done. You were one of the experts that were featured um, during section two of that wonderfully informative show that you can you can see the link on your on your website or on CNN.com. But first, I want to get started. I love your book. Thank you. Oh, I love your book. I'm embarrassingly, admittingly so. I'm ashamed to say I came to it too late, only in the past two weeks, and I've been devouring it and to prep for this interview, I have to go back and reread a million sections. But in your book, you say, we all have our own sphere of influence, and we should consider how it might be used to interrupt the cycle of racism. And since this is, you know, a podcast for parents and those who are interested in becoming parents, I want to focus on our sphere of influence at home and um, and how we know how, how we can choose to raise our kids, what we know is going to have a massive impact on the future. So we're going to get to that. But before we get into raising the future, <laughs> no pressure, guys. We got a lot to do. I want to look at the past. You've referred to yourself as an integration baby. Can you share a little bit about your own upbringing and what it was like uh, for you in a coming of age during the civil rights era? And how did your childhood experiences inspire your work? Sure. Well, so let's start with the very beginning, which is 1954. That was the year that I was born, and it happens to be the year of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, which is why I refer to myself as an integration baby, right? Because that was the, the year that school segregation was declared unconstitutional. And, but I was born, let's say that, I was born in Florida. Um, and Florida, like a lot of Southern states, did not immediately move to desegregate the schools, even though that was the ruling in 1954. And the impact that had on my life is that my parents, both of whom were educators, uh, were impacted by segregation in the South. My father in particular was a professor teaching at Florida A&M University, which is a historically Black college. And he was um, educated at Howard University as an art major. He was an artist. And then he got a master's degree at the University of Iowa in the early 50s, wanted to get a doctorate so he could advance in higher education and would have liked to do that in Tallahassee, Florida, where we were living at Florida State University, just across town. But Florida State at that time was an all-white institution. So he was not able to attend, even though it was after Brown versus Board of Education. The state of Florida had to accommodate providing access to Black graduate students. But the way they did that, in my father's case, was to pay his transportation out of the state. So my dad went, <laughs> it's crazy to hear that now. And of Whoa. course, today, Florida State is a very diverse institution in terms of its student population. But back mm -hmm. in 1954, he couldn't go. 
And so they paid his transportation to Pennsylvania. And he attended Penn State, got his doctorate there, finished that degree in 1957. And so now I'm three years old and my parents are thinking they don't want to stay in Florida. And so they moved to Massachusetts in part because they did not want their children. I had an older brother at the time. He was about to start school and they didn't want him to start school in a segregated school system. So we moved to a small town outside of Boston. My father became the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State University. And I grew up in that small town going to school. Wow. One of just a very small number of black children in the school district. And uh, so really from the very beginning, issues of race and racism were shaping my life. Wow. And one of the ideologies that emerged from the civil rights movement is this this idea of racial colorblindness, which we all know and you very well know since you were raised around so much change. And it's not it's. It's just not real. It's not it's just not it's a not thing. Real. And it's not it's real. not real. It's how I was raised. I think my parents, I love them dearly. I think they really thought they were doing a much better job than their parents in a in terms of race and that everyone was welcome in our home, that they were claiming not to judge anybody based on race even though we know that is also not possible. Well, let's start with the idea of colorblindness. Yes, let's do that. So um, a lot of parents will say, you know, my child doesn't see color. You know, she's colorblind. Or they will say, I I want her to be colorblind. I want him to be colorblind. And what they really mean is I want my child to treat everyone the same or to not discriminate. Nothing wrong with teaching your kids not to discriminate. But what we know is that kids do notice difference. They, from a very young age, notice skin color differences and differences in hair texture, and they have questions about those differences. And they will ask questions of their parents, like, why is Tommy's skin so brown? Or why is, you know, Susie's hair so curly? Why doesn't it look like mine? Um, These are questions that they're likely to ask. And a parent who is concerned that their child not notice is likely to respond to those questions with, shh. You know, don't talk about it. Don't notice it. Never comment on someone's skin color or hair texture or eye shape. And those are um, messages that tell a child that there's something wrong with those things. We don't Mm -hmm. speak about them because maybe there's something wrong with it. And uh, and so that's an inadvertent message, I think, that kids are getting. And, of course, if they've got questions... Like, why do people have different skin colors? That's a question you can answer with factual information. Has to do with melanin in the skin. The more you have, the browner it is. Melanin helps protect from the sun. People who come from really warm places tend to have darker skin. Um, All of that is easily explained to a young child. But if a parent is so anxious by the question or, you know, made so anxious by the question, they mostly try to shut it down. That leads not to color blindness, but what I call in my book, color silence. Color silence. And I I am a, I have that 100%. I have not had as many conversations about race that I've ever had in my entire life since um, the past three weeks and all of these brutal police violence and murders of black people, which we know has been going on forever. And I am definitely one of those white people that just... Color silence, color 
blind. That's how I was raised. We don't talk about it. And I could already see with my two and a half year old son that I could easily keep that systemic racism happening. I could definitely say that in the past two weeks, I've bought books and pointed out, you know, this person has black skin. This person has brown skin. This person has white skin. This person, you know, and and I sweat just even saying the word and I say, wow, I'm so uncomfortable even saying it to my son because color blindness and color silence has made it so that we don't have the language skills or I don't have the language skills. So when you started teaching um, this class, Psychology of Racism, was this the first time that a lot of white people were having conversations about this? Obviously, I'm sure most of your black students had already had these conversations. Yes, it, it was for a lot of students. So I, I first taught a course on the psychology of racism in 1980. It was very early in my career. I was about 26 years old. And wow. I, um, but I had the opportunity to teach this class. And even though I was an inexperienced educator at that point, at the end of the semester, my students, most of whom were white, mm -hmm. said, this class has been the most eye-opening course I've ever taken. Why did I have to wait till I was a junior or senior in college to have these conversations? Oh. For many of them, it was the first time that they'd really been able to talk openly about issues of race, racism, racial identity, not just in school, but anywhere, because there had been so much silence in their families and their communities around these issues. Mm. And the Black students, were they like, we've been having these conversations? I mean, I know we've seen a lot on Instagram, these conversations that I see adults having with their Black children of how to what do you do if a police officer comes up to you, which my white privilege has allowed me to never have that conversation with my parents or my child as of yet? Were your black students already yes. noticing this huge difference? Yeah. OK. Yeah. I mean, typically, <laughs> you know, in those classes over the course of the years that I taught it, the students of color, particularly the African-American students, um, had had many more conversations at home with their parents um, mm -hmm. in the ways that you were just describing or with family members or friends who were also people of color, then the, the, you know, it was very common for white students to say, we never talked about it at home. Black kids would say, yes, we've had those conversations at home. What was uncommon was for both of them to be able to have conversations together, right? So a lot of black kids will have had conversations in their families, but not necessarily with white people. So the cross-racial conversation sometimes is a new experience for everyone. Wow. Wow. So getting back to this podcast and like that kids say the darndest things, okay? Yeah. Uh, and I'm assuming I love watching your TED Talk about, I think, wasn't it your son who said, does he drink a lot of chocolate milk or something? No, no well, my three-year-old, when of course my son is all grown up now, but when he was three, he came home from school saying, Tommy says my skin is brown because I drank chocolate. That's milk. right. Is that true? He wanted he wanted the facts. <laughs> you know what what And is this when it occurred to you that the melanin answer was something that was very tangible for a three year old? You know, I also think as a lot of these white parents are waking up to having conversations with race with their kids. There are developmentally appropriate ways in which to address a different age. Obviously, we're going to talk about race differently with a three and a half year old than we are with a 15 year old. Exactly. 
So can you just say, I think language skills right now are so important and to practice is so important. Mm -hmm. So how did you address that question when he asked it to you? So as you said, you know, you have to be developmentally appropriate. And the good news is I'm a child clinical psychologist. <laughs> so, Lucky your kids have it good. <laughs> so I had some awareness of what would be appropriate talking to a three-year-old. But what I said to him is, no, your skin is not brown because you drank chocolate milk. Your skin is brown because you have something in your skin called melanin. Everybody has some, even Tommy. Remember when he went to visit his grandmother and he came back from Florida with a tan? It was the melanin in his skin that made it turn brown in the sun. Everybody has some. It helps protect your skin from the sun. But you are the kid at your school with the most which is why you know, your skin is the brownest because you have the most melanin. See, it's like we need to practice saying things like that because I just, it's incredible how ingrained it is for me to just say, well, first of all, to not even prepare yourself. You know those things are going to come. You know at some point your toddler is going to point out someone that looks different than them different hair, different eyes, different color skin, a different way they walk, a different way they talk, all of these things. And I feel like I'm not prepared. And I just, my husband and I have said, have never had a conversation like, hey, when Albie says, why is he brown? Or why is he have curly hair? Or whatever he's going to say. We haven't prepared like we've prepared, let's say, well, we haven't yet, but I would assume when they're older, like, what are we going to do when our kid comes home and says, how is a baby made or whatever? <laughs> but but I'm so unprepared for the race conversation that it's just ingrained to say, shh, like, you know, we don't we don't talk about that. Um, so I love hearing your actual examples because I'm going to use them. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I want to just be clear that, you know, as a parent myself, there were times when I got caught off guard. And I'm thinking now of my same three-year-old. I have two sons, but this particular one said to me, we were in the grocery store and he said, mom, why is that woman so fat? Right. Pointing out a really heavy person in the store. And I, of course, was embarrassed for him and her and me, you know, and, and your impulse is to, you know, the child. Um, and that was my initial impulse. But then I recovered and I said, because people come in different sizes, you know, um, it doesn't have to be a long, drawn out explanation. You know, I could have said if let's imagine my son was pointing out somebody whose skin was different from his own, maybe much darker or lighter. And he said, you know, why is that person's skin that way? I could talk about melanin, but I could also just say because people come in different shades, just like. Some people have blonde hair, some people have brown hair, some people have freckles, some people don't. You know, people come in all different sizes, shapes, skin tones. Do we initiate these conversations or are we supposed to wait for them, for a toddler to bring that up to us? I think you can initiate them, um, but there are easy ways to do that. And one of the easiest is to read a book. You know, there are lots of children's books that address difference, difference hair, hair and hair texture, difference in physical shapes of eyes or skin color, you know, books that are celebrating the diversity of the human family. And so if you have um, a preschooler's book and you're reading it together, you can just talk about it. I mean, some of those books will give language 
because that's what the book is about. Um, but to be able to say, oh, isn't this, you know, look at this picture. How about that? You know, does she look like our friend at school? You can just have a very natural conversation about the text in front of you. Yeah, there is a website, I think, socialjustice.org. Is that socialjusticebooks.org. That's right. Socialjusticebooks.org. And we will link to it on Katie's Crypt because I have found that through you very helpful. And yes, the book thing, it has been so helpful. This morning we read a Sesame Street book. You know, we're different. And it just gave me a framework for someone who's so un- I'm so uncomfortable having these conversations and I'm so not practiced that to just open a book that had Sesame Street drawings of different eyes close up and different nose close up. And I'm like, look at her nose. Look at his. Look at his face. Like, isn't that beautiful? You know, like just at least having some sort of framework so I'm not just completely at a loss. It was very, very helpful. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Dearest listener, in a world where fashion oft neglects the true diversity of the human form, Snag emerges as the beacon of inclusivity we so desperately need, renowned for their exquisite tights. Snag has triumphantly expanded its offerings to include garments that embrace everybody. Snag's creations are meticulously designed on a lifelike figures and refined across a spectrum of shapes before gracing our wardrobes, clothing that not only promises but delivers true comfort and fit, particularly of note other chub rub shorts ingeniously crafted with a moisture wicking yarn to ensure you remain at least one degree cooler and entirely free from the dreaded chafing perfect for every season these shorts can be discreetly worn under your clothes offering a delightful alternative to traditional cycling shorts whether you are at the gym hiking or simply enjoying a day in a skirt 
beautiful dress. They are your ideal companion. Remember, dear listener, the more you snag, the more you save. With free shipping on select orders. Don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at snagtights.us. What about when you, as an educator, I find this so sensitive. I'm just so, I don't even know, angry about my education. I just am. I can't believe how many things I could, I just can't believe how many things in the past three weeks I have never known, historically speaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we help that? How do we make demands and, and push forward that the real history of this country is, is being taught to our children? Well, it does require some self-education, right? Because, you know, you don't know what's missing if it's also missing for you, right? You know, you might Missing, guys. (laughs) Guilt right here. Missing. Right. You know, so so the good news is there's a lot of great stuff out there to educate oneself. You know, there are wonderful books, some classic texts. You know, I think about Howard Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, you know, and if you don't have time to read, there's probably an audible version, right? You know, Definitely. so, so <laughs> there are lots of ways for us to educate ourselves. But I do think for a lot of people, and this was certainly true of my college students, you know, we would talk about historical events, even something as recent as the internment of Japanese Americans during World War mm. II. Mm. And I would have kids who would say, I have never heard of that before. I'd be just shocked. And, and today... Um, if you think about the fact that this is twenty, the year 2020, there are young people who weren't alive during the civil rights movement. You know, I, I was born in 54, as I said. You know, I, I remember quite clearly the assassination of Dr. King. I remember, you know, seeing on the nightly news protests in Alabama and other places because that was, I was, you know, coming of age, a teenager during that time. But if you were wow, born, this is so this is so interesting. This is so for you. I, wow. Yeah, but if you were born in the year two thousand, you're twenty years old now. You know, you don't have any memory of those things, and hopefully, you've learned something about them in high school or middle school or college. But you might not have. So there are a lot of um, for many people there are these gaps in their understanding of U.S. history. And it's very difficult to really get the depth of what's going on right now without that history. So I just encourage people to, you know, read, but also there are lots of documentaries. For example, you know, one, a fabulous one that's available on Netflix right now, which relates to uh, police violence is 13th. Oh, it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, it's a very powerful, certainly not intended for young children to view, but for adults who want to really educate themselves about the ongoing struggle for freedom, it's certainly very powerful. And you, to bring it back around, you're right. I can't, I can't help my child unless I know. When should parents begin educating their kids on the painful historical moments in our in our history in african-american history like how can we talk about slavery in an age-appropriate way i love i've I've heard you say a little bit about this and i've been telling my husband a lot about using the word fair or unfair i feel like is something that kids really get while they're figuring out how to share and figuring out why does this person get something that i don't have at what age is something 
like slavery appropriate to talk about and how do we do so? Well, you know, um, I know that you made reference to my TEDx talk entitled, Is My Skin Brown Because I Drank Chocolate Milk? You know, in that talk, I also talk about a conversation I had with my four-year-old son um, about slavery. Not voluntarily, I would just say. Um, I wasn't planning to have a conversation with the four-year-old about slavery, but he asked me a question that I could not answer without talking about slavery. So to just give this some context, Yes, you know, please. he came home and he said, you know, one of his friends at school, so-and-so says I'm black. Am I black? And I said, yes, you are. And then he said, but my skin is brown. Um, you know, it's not black. And I said, well, you're right. Your skin is the color brown. But black is a term that people use to describe African-Americans, just like people use the term white to describe people who came from Europe, European-Americans. I said, and, you know, white people aren't really white. They're more like pink or beige or tan. Um, mm -hmm. And people from Africa aren't really black, but that's the language people use. They're, you know, pe African people from Af of African descent are different shades of brown. We talked a little bit about that. And then I said, you know, I, what I wanted to emphasize was his sense of pride in being African-American. So I was talking about the wonders of Africa. And, you know, what it means to be um, from a long tradition of culture that goes back a long way. And I'm just, you know, saying, sharing all the things that I had learned about Africa. Um, big continent, but this is what I was sharing. And then he said to me, if Africa is so great, what are we doing here? Oh. This is a four-year-old. Right? I am <laughs> sweating right now. <laughs> so what could I say? You know, I could not adequately answer why people of African descent were sitting in the United States of America without talking about slavery. And so I said, well, that's a great question. That's, you know, sort of filling in the gap of a little time, giving myself mm -hmm. time to think. That's a great question. But here's a little bit of information. Remember when you were in your daycare center and they were talking about the pilgrims and, you know, the pioneers settling this country way back when, when before there were stores and um, before there were roads and, you know, farms and stuff, people, the European settlers came and they had a lot of work to do and they needed a lot of workers to get that work done. And so they went to Africa and they got the strongest, smartest workers they could find. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they didn't want to pay them and they brought them here against their will. That was very unfair. And, mm -hmm. and, they, and they made them work and that's what's called slavery. And it was very unfair. And yet, and the people who came struggled to escape. And I really wanted to emphasize agency, not just victimization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they struggled to escape and they uh, rebelled against the slavery, but eventually, and I also wanted to emphasize allies, right? You know, while, you know, a lot of the enslaving people were white, there were also white people who were helping them escape and helping with the rebellions even. And so after some time, slavery came to an end. And uh, the good news is I was never a slave. You were never a slave. Grandmommy and granddaddy were never slaves. This was really a long time ago, but that's how people from Africa came to this place. So then he said, well, when slavery was over, did, why didn't they go back? And 
I said, well, actually, some people did. You know, mm -hmm. there was a, a movement where some people were able to go back. But then I said, you know, some people might have just wanted to be here because their families were here. You know, they had people they cared about here. And then he brought the conversation to a close, thankfully, by saying, and this is a nice place, too. And I said, yes. Liz. Oh, my you goodness. <laughs> now, to just add a little color to this situation, we were not at home. We were in the grocery store. No. Wow. So he was sitting in the basket. You know, I was doing my shopping and we're having a just casual wow. Saturday afternoon conversation. By the way, that's how it's always going to happen. It's exactly. never going to be like you think it's is, you know, over the dinner table where it's private and you can really have a heart to heart or whatever it is. It's going to be in public. It's going to be distracted and multitasking because we're moms and that's how we do it. And you have to take the opportunity when it comes. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if you had said to me, are you planning to have a conversation with your child about slavery when he's four? I would have said, no, probably not. But the truth is there are children's books that deal with the subject of slavery that are appropriate for reading with a four-year-old. There are, one could imagine, for example, Juneteenth just took place, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. many people were learning about Juneteenth for the first time. But let's imagine you have a child who's hearing about Juneteenth and you're saying, well, Juneteenth marked the end of slavery. Well, what was slavery? Tell me about that. I mean, so you could see how easily just listening to the news together, you might find yourself in the midst of a conversation with a young child. And what about kids who are older watching the news today? How do we talk to them about the police? Well, that's very challenging, right? Because it's even for adults to see the video, for example, of the killing of George Floyd is very upsetting. And mm -hmm. certainly it will be upsetting to a younger person. If you can protect your children from seeing those visual images, it's a good idea to do so. But as we know, sometimes they have access to the internet without our supervision. They see things on television just passing through the room or they hear about it. And so you do want to be able to have those conversations. And I think it's important to acknowledge the reality of the bad thing that happened. This was a horrible thing that happened. We know that there are police officers who are doing good jobs and are trying to help people every day. Most police officers don't use their guns in the course of their career. That's a fact. Mm. That said, we also know that Black people are more likely to suffer at the hands of a police officer than white people are. That's part of racism in our society. And that's why people are out protesting right now, because they want those things to change. Mm. And for me, emphasizing even, you know, when you're delivering bad news to a kid, you also want to build in a sense of the possibility of change. There's a long history of this kind of violence. We know that. There's a long history of unfairness. There's a long history of racism built into our society. Um, but even as we're talking about it, we also want to talk about the way each of us can work toward change. And that's what's happening right now. I just love and connect to your work so much in the way that you, like you were talking to your son about slavery, how it's so important to you to not only show stories of, uh, you don't show stories of victimization you show how strong Black people were in the face of slavery, or you show that, yes, there were a lot of examples of 
white people being very unfair to black people. But you also say there were white allies who stood up for black people. And similarly, you're talking the same about police officers. And I think that it's important to um, acknowledge the problem. But even as we acknowledge the problem, what's the solution? You know, this is a problem. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you're a black parent talking to a black child, that child might worry that this thing could happen to them or perhaps. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. How do you as a black parent listening right now, the conversations that you're having about the police, what is that? How do you stress the realness of it and, and the possibility of it, but also I mean, I just have to empathize with all parents. You don't want your kid to be scared all the time. It's just. And so you don't want your kid to be scared all the time. And you also don't want them to be vulnerable because you haven't prepared them. Mm -hmm. So on the Mm -hmm. one hand, you know, if you're talking to a four-year-old, you're going to emphasize the fact that you are here to protect. I'm here to protect you. You don't have to worry about that because I'm here to protect you. Um, But if you're talking to a 14-year-old, you're not there all the time to protect that child. You know, they might be out riding a bike or, you know, in a, a car with a friend. What might that, what happens if you're pulled over by a police officer? If a police officer stops you and wants to know where'd you get that bike? You know, um, all of that, those are conversations that you have to have. It's not fair that you have to have it. But if you don't have those conversations, you might have a child who doesn't know Keep your hands visible at all times. Don't be rude. Be as cooperative as possible because you don't want that police officer to get to feel fearful or nervous or anxious around you. (sighs) You know, it's it's not fair that you have to have those conversations, but it's better to have it and have the kid come home than to, to later find out that, you know, somebody got trigger happy. Yeah. It's not enough to not be racist. Now we're using terminology that I've never used. We have to be anti-racist. Can you describe to us what the distinction is? You illustrate this absolutely beautifully in your book. Sure. Well, I like to use a visual. And so let's imagine that we are at the airport on a moving walkway. If we think about racism as a system, not just people's individual attitudes or actions, but systems of policies and practices that systematically disadvantage people of color, if we're talking about anti-Black racism, systematically targeting people of African descent. And so if we understand that those policies and practices were in place long before we entered the picture, you know, that it's almost like a conveyor belt moving us all along, sort of, we don't even have to do anything. It's so built into the system. So if you step onto that conveyor belt of the cycle of racism carrying us all along and you embrace those racial attitudes, you embrace white supremacy, you might be like the person walking fast on that walkway, trying to get to the destination quickly. But you might say, no, I don't think that way. I don't want to embrace that. I'm just standing here. I'm not doing anything. I'm just standing here. But even if you're standing still on a moving walkway, you're being carried forward to the same destination. You're just not a person walking fast. Exactly. You're headed in the same place. If you decide, well, okay, I don't want to go there. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to look in the other direction. Unless you're moving, you're just now traveling backward. You're still going the same place. You just don't see it. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So the only way to interrupt this process is to actively walk fast in the opposite direction. And that's what anti-racism is. It's about actively walking in a different direction to interrupt that cycle of racism. You can't interrupt it passively. So when someone says, I'm not racist, usually what they're saying is, I'm just standing here. That's really what they're describing. You know, I'm not using foul language. I'm not using racial slurs. I'm not, you know, actively discriminating. But unless you're working to interrupt that system, you are colluding with it. You're part of it as much as the person who is actively walking in the sense that it You're all going in the same direction. You're all going in the same direction. It's just continuing and continuing. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Dearest listener, in a world where fashion oft neglects the true diversity of the human form, Snag emerges as the beacon of inclusivity we so desperately need, renowned for their exquisite tights. Snag has triumphantly expanded its offerings to include garments that embrace everybody. Snag's creations are meticulously designed on a lifelike figures and refined across a spectrum of shapes before gracing our wardrobes, clothing that not only promises but delivers true comfort and fit, particularly of note other chub rub shorts ingeniously crafted with a moisture wicking yarn to ensure you remain at least one degree cooler and entirely free from the dreaded chafing perfect for every season these shorts can be discreetly worn under your clothes offering a delightful alternative to traditional cycling shorts whether you are at the gym hiking or simply enjoying a day in a skirt or dress they are your ideal companion remember dear listener the more you snag the more you save with free shipping on select orders. Don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at snagtights.us. 
So to be an anti-racist parent raising an anti-racist kid, mm-hmm. what strategies can we take to empower them to transform that knowledge into action? So it's like not only can we have the conversation and not be color silenced, not be color blind, talk about things when our kids bring it up, read books, point things out, get comfortable with the language skills. Now, how do I empower my kid to be anti-racist and to to run in the other direction with me? How do we do it? Yes. So I think that there are examples that can come up. For example, um, we were talking about uh, school settings, you know, and the what's being taught, what's missing. Mm-hmm. So a parent could talk about the fact that, gosh, you know, I was at the school today and I noticed that there weren't any books in the school library of the kind that I think kids should have access to. You know, that's a, that's, that's a concern of mine. What do you think about that? And you could talk to your child about that. You know, it seems like they don't have very many books written about children of color in the library. And your child might say, well, you know, but there aren't any kids of color in our neighborhood. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, sure. sure. And, um, and the parent might say, well, you know what, That's, that might be true, but still every kid should see kids of color in the books, not just the kids of color. And so I think we should do something about that. What do you think we could do? And then you could have a conversation about maybe we should write a letter to the school or to the librarian. Maybe we should donate some books to the library. Uh, maybe we oh. should have a, you know, which, which books do you think? Let's look at, let's go on that social justice books dot org and figure out which books would be the best ones to choose, for example. You know, this is a small example. But, but this is brilliant. This is how you start to affect change together. Yes, exactly. And that, I think, is the critical thing, that the, you want your child to see you as an agent of change because you're going to model that. You're going to model that. I want to tell a short story um, Please. Uh, I, I have a I have a dear friend who is white. She and I have done workshops, unlearning racism workshops together for many years. And she because she's an anti-racist activist, she has raised an anti-racist child. Um, and she told me a story once about her son when he was seven. And I think it's a really powerful example of the kind of behavior we would like to see. So he went to school on a school bus and when he came home from school, he was visibly upset. She asked him what was upsetting him. And he said, there was a kid on the bus. In this case, it wasn't about race, but it was a different kind of difference. There was a child with perhaps an intellectual disability Mm -hmm. on the bus who was being picked on by older kids. They were throwing spitballs at this child on the bus, bullying and this seven-year-old was very upset by what he was seeing. And so he's telling his mom about what happened. And she said, I can see why this was upsetting to you. And he said, I didn't know what to do. And of course, the kids who were behaving badly were older children. And so this little seven-year-old didn't know what to do. So she said, well, it must have been upsetting. And he said, yeah, I didn't know what to do. She said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I just went and sat with him. And I thought that was like the perfect thing Oof. for that seven-year-old to do. You know, he got out of his seat and went and sat next to that kid who was being picked on. 
in solidarity with him. You know, that was mm-hmm. a great example of what we would call upstander behavior, ally behavior. Um, and that seven-year-old had already learned that when somebody's being mistreated, you stand up for that person. And so um, that's the kind of behavior. I mean, it could have been a black kid. In this case, it wasn't. That it wasn't about racism. It was about perhaps ableism. The understanding that I can intervene, I can speak up, I can use my sphere of influence. You know, I'm only seven, but I can go sit next to that kid. Wow. That's a beautiful story. Ugh. What? This is a huge question, but where do you think the people of color who aren't black are falling into this work? I well, mean, it's massive. I Sure. So I think, you know, when we talk about racism, what we need to understand is racism impacts lots of groups of color, not just black people. Mm -hmm. And particularly during this time of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, we are reading about, you know, the ways in which Asian Americans are being targeted, you know, as somehow being at fault for this pandemic, which clearly they are not. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and we have seen, you know, post 9-11, uh, attacks on Muslims and, you know, other groups of people who are perceived as different because of their religious affiliation and maybe because of their dress and or skin color. So we know that um, racism is not just something that Black people experience, but I think it is important to acknowledge that there is a kind of anti-Black racism, which uh, we saw on display with the killing of George Floyd. Um, And when we talk about the legacy of slavery, that um, there's a kind of racism that is specific to the experience of African-Americans. And sometimes it is more violent um, than what might be experienced by someone who has lighter skin, but is also targeted in a different way. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's important to understand that, you know, racism is not unique to Black people that there are other groups that, and there can be within communities of color attitudes, even within the African-American community, there can be negative attitudes toward people. We sometimes call this colorism, you know, where we are valuing lighter skinned people over darker skinned people or vice versa. So that the smog, I call it smog, you know, the yeah, smog that in here. of negative attitudes, you know, the prejudicial attitudes that are part of our culture, we all breathe that smog, right? You know, unless we're wearing a gas mask, we're all breathing that smog. And so even though we can talk about the systemic nature of racism, those policies and practices, we don't want to ignore the fact that the cultural attitudes that create a racial hierarchy, some people being better than other people based on their physical appearance or other attributes, that we are all infected with that because we've all been breathing this smog. And to the extent that we recognize that that's part of our culture, we all have a responsibility to try to clean up that air. And that's what we're doing as parents when we're trying to um, and help our children understand the value of all human beings and to recognize that these racial hierarchies that are part of our culture are flawed and false and need to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. In your book, you write about critical consciousness. Can you just elaborate on this important skill and how parents can help kids develop it? 
Sure. So when I talk about critical consciousness, what I'm really talking about is helping kids think critically about these social justice issues like racism. But I use in my book an example of talking to my oldest son about sexism. So we were reading a book together in which I observed, and it was a book that I had read when I was a kid, and I hadn't noticed it when I was a kid. But now as a mom, I'm sitting with my seven-year-old son. We're reading this book together, and I'm noticing that the boys in the story are being treated differently than the girls in the story, repeatedly. You know, that there's two boys and two girls in a family and the boys get the fishing rods and the girls have to sit on the banks and watch. You know, the boys are about to solve the mystery and the girls are told to wait here, right? You know, there's all this gendered behavior happening in the book. And so I stopped reading and I said to my son, something about this story is bothering me. He said, well, what is it? I said, well, you know, there's, do you know what sexism is? He said, no. And I said, sexism is when girls are being treated differently than boys just because they're girls. And I'm noticing that these girls are not getting the same privileges that the boys are getting. They're not having the same kind of opportunities that the boys are having. I don't think that's fair. And that's what sexism is. And he said, well, can we keep reading the book? (laughs) You know, like, is this a deal breaker? Um, and, and I said, yeah, we can keep reading it. But I just wanted to point this out because it was bothering me. So we kept reading together. But a few pages in, he stopped me and he said, Mom, there's that stuff again. And now he, because I had described it and explained it, he was able to see it and name it. And in the same way, we could have been having a conversation about the racism in a book or on the television. Or, you know, have you noticed that when uh, they talk about criminals, they always show black people. um, But when they're white criminals, they don't show their faces. As an example, uh, you know, there are things that you can observe and point out to help your child think critically about those questions. And those conversations, not just one, but over time, help them to ask the question, well, who, who is missing from this picture? You know, why is this happening in this way? And then what could we do about it? I need that as much as my kids. So I'm glad that they model because we're my son and I are doing this together starting three weeks ago or four weeks ago. And I feel all this pressure and the importance and the I feel it, but I also am hopeful because I'm like, okay, I don't have to get this right. And I have a lifetime to practice and to, you know, I have a lifetime to seize opportunities and, and, um, and try things. And I really am so encouraged by everyone saying, or a lot of people saying, it's okay if you mess up or you're stumbling at first. And that is really something that's important to remember. You can always come back and say, You know, I was thinking about that conversation we had yesterday and I said this, but, you know, I've been thinking more about it. And what I really meant was that. So let me tell you more about that. Right. Right. That helps take the pressure off parents, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Absolutely. (laughs) Just as we're closing out, I just I want to say, you know, with with Black Lives Matter leading the charge, 
And so many citizens are running the other way on the conveyor belt, which is amazing. Your 23-year-old book about race, you guys, I'm going to say that again. 23 years ago, you wrote the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And other conversations about race, which which got an update again in 2017. It's been on the bestseller list now for several weeks. So your assessment of the landscape today, how do you view the future? Do you have hope? <laughs> like, how are you feeling about that? Your book is it's huge right now. Well, of course, that's, you know, if you write a book, you want people to read it. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as an author, it's very exciting to see that people are indeed buying it and hopefully they're buying it so that they can read it. Um, and so that is encouraging to me because I think there are um, tools in my book that people will be able to put to use if they read it. So that's encouraging. But I also think that it's really important um, and not just my book, there are a bunch of books dealing with the topic of race and racism on the bestseller list right now. And that is a sign of hope in the sense that people are taking seriously the need to educate themselves. You know, if there's something you didn't know, then maybe it's time to educate yourself about it. Um, but once you have that information, you have to put it into action. And it is, of course, the case that when people are just starting out, they're going to make mistakes. I told you I started teaching my course on the psychology of racism when I was 26 years old. I made mistakes, but if we wait for perfection, we will never get started. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to just, you know, risk some discomfort to have those conversations, risk some discomfort to engage in dialogue with maybe folks you don't usually talk to, um, and then think about what actions can I take to interrupt the cycle of racism? That's critical. Wow. Wow. Dr. Tatum, you are, I, I have, I'm just so blown away. And this was such a gift. Um, your time was such a gift to me and to all the Katie's Crib listeners. If there are any final thoughts or piece of advice and where can listeners find you? Well, I have a website, mm -hmm. beverlydanieltatum.com. Mm -hmm. And certainly um, much of the resources, many of the resources that we talked about, uh, there are links on my website that will help people certainly find my books, but also some of the conversations that have been recorded. And uh, hopefully it, that can be a useful resource. It is. Thank you so much, Dr. Tatum, for coming on Katie's Crib. Well, Katie, thank you for having me. I want to take a minute and just really say thank you guys so much for listening and thank you to all the resilient moms out there and caregivers and justice warriors who are committed to creating a better fairer future i'm so humbled and i'm i'm just so inspired by you and i sincerely appreciate the opportunity to use katie's crib to learn and grow and take care of one another together so please keep sending in all of your questions and your stories to katie's crib at shondaland.com Katie's Crib is a production of iHeartRadio and Shondaland Audio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Oh,